Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 2. I will be stepping out of Ephesians until next year. And so Luke chapter 2, as we uh, look upon this passage of Scripture and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. I like this uh, winter weather. I thought I was in another state when I walked out the door this morning. Uh, anyway, the way it was so cold last week. Anyway, I, I kind of like it. And uh, well, it's winter time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for the word of God. Thank you for your people. And thank you, Lord, for this season. Even though I know, Lord, we all know this season is filled with paganism. It is filled with things that have nothing to do with the truth of why we celebrate it. And Lord, in any way, your people celebrate this truth every day, every day of the year. And so we thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Lord, for the goodness that you've shown to humanity by sending the greatest gift we could ever have and the greatest gift you could ever give. Thank you, Father, that you are a giving God. I pray that we would give it, be a giving people. But I pray, Lord, that we would also learn to receive, especially receive the truth of the Word of God, for it is a gift to us, to our ears, to our mind, to our souls. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you would transform us by it, as you promised you will and would. And I just ask you, Lord, today you would do the same and encourage us by what is written therein. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Luke chapter 2 is about seeing in the salvation of God. If someone could see the salvation of God, what would it look like? Or better, whom would it look like? Well, if you are, if you put your eyes on Luke chapter 2, verse number 30, you will find the answer. And if you notice what it says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now we already know from the context that it's talking about Jesus Christ in this passage of scripture. So how a person thinks and speaks and reacts to what God has revealed in his word is vitally important, especially what a person says concerning Jesus, that is about who Jesus is in his character and in his mission. When scripture gives us a glimpse into people, especially people who remain faithful to God's word and their faithfulness to the word of God produces within them an expectation about what God is going to do, we have to take notice of a person like that. There was such a man in our context in scripture here, who was waiting for God's next move. Matter of fact, his life and his death depended on it. His name was Simeon. And as far as I know, nothing is known of Simeon beyond what is stated in this passage of scripture. But what is recorded about Simeon tells volumes about his life and about his heart 
and about his passion. Simeon informs us of some of the most marvelous news concerning Christ, the Messiah, and also the historical and prophetical events of that time. Now, what this man waited for was what he understood the prophets had said would come about long ages before, in fact, some 1,200 years before he ever lived. His testimony is based on the word of God already recorded in God's plan. In the opening verses of this section, verse 22 to 24, it speaks of combining two ordinances or two observances that the Jews were to do once they had a baby. And if you notice in verse number 22 of chapter Luke chapter 2, this is what it says, And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So the first thing they would do is present a baby, a firstborn male, to the Lord. That was what a Jew was supposed to do. And then in verse number 23, it says, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And then verse 24, And then to offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they were to offer up a sacrifice too. Now, in this passage of Scripture, it actually tells us here without telling us that Mary and Joseph were poor. Well, how do I know that? Well, if you notice, the offering they were supposed to give was a lamb. But here it says, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Well, let's just go back to a Le- Leviticus real quick and just check on this f- for a minute. And look at Leviticus chapter 12 and verse number 8, where it tells us there what a person was supposed to do if they couldn't afford a lamb. In Leviticus 12 and verse number 8, it says, But if she cannot afford a lamb then she shall take two turtle doves and two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So there in that passage of Scripture, it's telling us that Mary and Joseph were coming uh, to offer up the purification of their uh, situation in having a male child, and then their offering was to be an offering out of their poverty, that they could not afford a lamb. They had to use something that was in their category of what they can offer to the Lord, and that's what they did. So see, the first requires that every firstborn son be presented to the Lord as belonging to him as some special, in some special sense, namely to be a priest of the Lord, and since the priesthood had, was allotted to the tribe of Levi, the first sons were to be redeemed and were to be bought back from the Lord for the price of five shekels. So according to Exodus, they were to sanctify every firstborn and every offspring from the womb. So in other words, that Mary and Joseph were obeying what was already written 
in the law of God. They were doing exactly what they ought to be doing as faithful Jews, as faithful people who were connected with worshiping the true and living God, and that's what they did. And they did the right thing, and they did it in a way that would honor the Lord. So the chief reason for which Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem was this presentation of Jesus to the Lord God, and they did that. A second thing was, of course, the ritual purification of a woman 40 days following her uh, childbirth and that ritual ceremony to cleanse her and to get her back into the service of the Lord was also included in this traveling uh, to the place where they would present Jesus as uh, the firstborn male within their family. Now, the visit to the temple to fulfill these laws becomes the occasion of Simeon's remarkable testimony of identifying Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, we'll see in the context, Simeon's prophetic expectation of Christ, which really was produced by the word of God that he already knew. Secondly, Simeon's pointed explanation of Christ's mission when he would come to earth, which of course The Word of God always gives us explanation on what is taking place. And then, of course, once that took place, he can die. So a peaceful exit is also included in our passage that the Word of God does offer to all who believe in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, internal peace and ex-exiting peace when you check out of the human race. All right, and of course that's up to the Lord. So let's look at our our text and see, uh, first of all, Simeon's prophetic expectation of Christ. Verse number 25, it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now there's certain things I want to bring out about the character of this man, because God in Scripture communicates very often, uh, if not always, when he uses men, when he uses people to communicate his truth, he does it through a certain character, that God doesn't just, doesn't just pick uh, anyone. He picks people with character. That's why when you look in the New Testament, the qualifications of an elder or a pastor has nothing to do with their degrees, or their political clout, or their, how wealthy they are. It has to do with their character. Do they have the character to do the job? And so they're to maintain that character throughout their ministry. So the first identification we get of this man is that he was a man in Jerusalem who, whose name was Simeon. Now, he is introduced as just a man. Nothing special about him at all. In fact, he, he has no office, he has no religious standing, uh, he has no political power, he's just an ordinary person who is serious about the Lord and his word. And if you notice how the Lord did not reveal these things to any within the religious 
system of that day or the political structure of that day. He did not go to those people. Matter of fact, he completely, deliberately bypassed them and just went to the ordinary people who were serving him and worshiping him. And if it wasn't for Simeon's name being here in this text, we probably would have never heard of him, even though it was a very common name in that day. Now look at verse number 25 of his character. It says three things about it. It says that he was, first of all, he was righteous, meaning that he lived according to a standard. Uh, The standard of the character of God, of course, and also meaning that he was right in a right relationship with God because he did everything he was supposed to do from the Old Testament to make his uh, sacrifice for a sin on the Day of Atonement where he would be, of course, at least his sins would be covered. And so a second thing about his character, and it's a very interesting word used there, is that he was devout. Now devout, literally, in the original language, means to take hold of well. This means that his life appeared before men as serious about godly things. Therefore, he was a man that was immovable by, in truth. His passion uh, shows us that he was convinced by the scriptures. So what was he holding to well? He was holding to the scriptures well. He was holding to the truth well. Uh, he was a person who took God at his word. Another thing that is said in this text is that he was a man that was, uh, had the Holy Spirit upon him. That, that, that means this pronouncement that he's going to make was a divine, had a divine source to it. He was speaking, he was not speaking on his own, he was speaking for God based on already revealed truth. Truth already spoken, as I already said, by the prophets. Now, you, you may ask, and I, what truth has already been spoken? Well, let me just mention a few that will supply an ample amount of prophetic revelation to fuel anybody's expectation that a special time was coming. All right, just in your own mind, if you go back 1,200 years, there was a passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3 where it says this, that God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Again, he, it, Jesus' birth is being uh, mentioned in, already in the word of God as being the offspring of the woman and shall bruise the serpent's head. He's going to do that, of course, within his birth, his life, and his, of course, death on the cross. Now, Simeon knew this long ago. He had the word of God within his grasp that he understood that. Also in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, that Jesus, this baby, would be from the tribe of Judah. Judah, your brother, will praise you, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. And then in Micah, 500 years before Jesus was born, he would be born in Bethlehem. But you, it says in Scripture, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
Through you, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who is ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. So in the word of God, it tells us, and he knew and had ample information that there would be a special time that was be, would be coming and that this babe would be born king in the line of David. In Isaiah 9, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. And then he will be born a child. In Isaiah 9 again, he will be called, he will, he will, it says there that he would, uh, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, he will be called Wonderful Counselor mighty God. And so he would also be born of a virgin. Now that's a tough one for people. I heard the other day listening to the radio, a person who was reading the Bible, uh, not knowingly being a believer, but interested in scripture. And he says that there's one thing I can't get about this season, and that's the virgin birth. And he says, that's impossible. And I says, exactly. Because if it was doable, it wouldn't be God. The virgin birth means God was involved and that man couldn't mess it up. See, that's ex so he really was saying, in a sense, the truth. He was showing his ignorance that this is impossible. I, 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 no, who could believe this? It's true, though, right? It also says in Scripture that king shall bring him gifts. And fall down before him. In Psalm 72, verse number 10, the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. So, in other words, the prophets had laid down specific details about the timing, about the virgin birth about a babe, about a place where he would be born, and Simeon was right on board. So, see, this, these prophets filled his expectation that something was happening, and he was living in the day that something was happening. Of course, he was so passionate about it, the Lord actually told him, you're going to actually see the salvation of God before you die. The Lord assured him of that. So see, it was his character. He was righteous and devout. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and he was in the word of God. He knew things that were being said in the word of God, that he would be born of the seed of Abraham, that he would be born of the seed of Isaac, that he would be the of the seed of Jacob, he would be uh, also the firstborn son sacrificed. And of course, it goes on and on in the Old Testament. If I were to go through all the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, we would have to be here for a while. And I know that you don't want to do that right now. See, but so he had ample amount of scripture to fuel his passion. And what was his passion? Look at verse number 25 of Luke chapter Two, his passion was this, looking for the consolation of Israel. So he was looking for something specific. This is what he was passionate about. He was expecting something from God. 
all the translations use this word consolation. I thought one would pick out another one because consolation also means encouragement. It also means to help. It means also to comfort. And probably comfort would be the closest one that could come to this particular word. Because this word really means that which affords comfort or refreshment. In other words, it was, if you notice, it says in verse number 25, it says, and there was a man in Judea, and then the last part of it, and then verse number uh, 26, the Holy Spirit was upon him, all right? And it says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Of course, that really specifically meant messianic salvation because in this, the scripture, verse 26, it uses the word Christ. And of course, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So we can say Jesus the Lord's Messiah, and the Lord's Messiah was the one who was going to be anointed by God specifically for a mission. Jesus was anointed by God to be not only priest, but he was to be prophet, priest, and king. All those roles Jesus would fulfill completely, and of course, he is not done fulfilling all of them as of yet because the second coming will highlight his, his kingship over and on this earth, and of course having to do with God's people and the nation of Israel. It's like a passage of scripture in Isaiah 41. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Or Isaiah 61 verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So how would this consolation come? Well, I tell you what, so far... And in Scripture, it would not come through political means. It would not come through philosophical intellectualism. It would not come through military means or any other means humanity would expect. It would come through a child, through a baby, the one who was prophesied to be born into poverty at a particular time in human history. It was no mistake at all when Jesus was born, the time he was born, to the parents he was born, the way he was born, in the political atmosphere in which he was born, in the prophetic atmosphere in which he was born. There's no mistake, and I can go on and on with those things. There was no mistake because God did it. And so... Simeon was passionate about what was happening. He was right in the midst of it. He was excited to, to be living when he was living. So let's look at his explanation in verse number 32 of Christ's mission. Now, this is interesting. He specifically is giving this revelation by God about his mission. Simeon perceives the true purposes of God for two things. It could also include three, to reach out to the Gentiles as well as to Israel. That the worldwide mission of the Messiah comes out clearly in these passages uh, that God was preparing before all people. If you notice in verse number 31, it says, 
Verse 29, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And here's the first thing, as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And secondly, and the glory of your people Israel. So we see the vast extent of God's saving work and the special thought and care and the effort of God to present salvation before the face of all peoples, not for a mere show, but for the people to listen to, to appropriate and thereby the end result, if believing by faith, to be saved. And the first group of people was the group that most of us are included in. And that's the group which would be the ethnon or the ethnic group, and we get the word translated here, Gentiles. And what did the Gentiles need? The Gentiles needed light. They needed to, they were, the reason why they needed light is because they were in darkness. If you look back to chapter one, you'll notice that all peoples were in darkness, but notice to chapter one in verse 77 of Luke. It says, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, in verse number 78, because of the tender mercy of God, of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, so the mission of Jesus Christ was very specific. That he was to bring to the Gentiles light because they were steeped in darkness. And darkness is the best way to describe the state of man apart from God or the state of man in ignorance. Man on his own, of course, trying to accomplish his own utopia independent of God only leads to a place where actually they're heading straight to hell on a grease slide and they don't even know it. See, among mankind, there's really no stability. There's really no real lasting answers. Hope is in short supply amongst humanity. And life to many seems a burden, even though they look like they're enjoying it. There's no enduring comfort. There's especially no comfort in death or in sickness, or in the uh, unrest of a nation. People get very nervous and anxious about what's happening in the world, and of course, rightfully so. But you know, for Christians, we really shouldn't get that anxious because it's not going to change God's plan at all. See, the reason for these conditions is that there is an ever-thickening darkness. We live in very spiritually dark days. Even though there's people talking all the time on thousands of radio stations about how to do this and how to know this and how to go here and all these kind of things, they have no knowledge of God. They're just filling up the time. They're moving, or moving air around. 
See, darkness is also a symbol of ignorance and sin and sorrow and destruction and perdition. It's, it is devastating to experience real darkness. I remember, actually not too long ago, uh, both my grandfathers uh, were coal miners. I believe both of them, at least one of them, died of black lung because he worked in the coal mines. And right here in Scranton, not too far away, a couple, two and a half hours away, and right now they have an anthracite museum dedicated to the coal miners. And they are allowed to go down deep into the shaft that they actually worked in. And it's not only cold, but when you get down there, they shut the lights off. Now there is no place for light to get in. There's no place. that You're, in, you're down in the earth and believe me, you, want, you immediately feel frightened. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. You, you, can't, you feel the darkness, and there's nothing you can do. There's, there's, there's no way to dispel the darkness. Of course, you have, if you had a flashlight, but that would be one way, but there's no flashlight spiritually. The flashlight is the Word of God. It's more like a spotlight, right? It, that's what the word, and if, see, if the word of God doesn't penetrate into the darkness and deadness of the human heart, there is no hope. So here the darkness is ignorance about God. It's, it's that dreadful, lost condition of people. See, what this passage is, is saying is that the Gentiles are well settled in spiritual darkness. They are groping around, but not necessarily trying to find their way out of it. Jesus brings this up in the Gospel of John, where he, when he, when he was talking uh, to Nicodemus, he said, uh, they're comfortable. They're comfortable in spiritual darkness. Ignorant darkness. And this is what Jesus says, and this is the judgment, that light is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, and his deeds, that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. See, your deeds, when you come to the light of the gospel, are still manifest. All the wickedness and evil in your heart are brought to light. But see, if, until a person knows that they're a sinner, until a person knows that they're not right with God, that they're under the judgment of God, well, they, see, they go along in, in, on their merry little ride through life, and they think they're doing all right. They think they're doing pretty well, actually. And, and yet they don't realize until the gospel arrests them in their tracks, until the gospel shines into their dark heart, until the Spirit of God makes that person alive and where the person sees their sin and wants to say, I'm in trouble with God, and what do I do about it? How can I be made right with the God who created me, the God who is the judge of all men, the God whom... Everyone will stand before someday. How can I be made right with that God? So here in Scripture is a greater and thicker darkness than natural darkness. That is the darkness and deadness 
of the human heart. And people don't want the light of God's revelation, but God knows without the illuminating revelation of the word of God, people will remain in darkness and will remain clueless because they're not getting the information anywhere else. Now, this light has such a quality to it where in Scripture tells us that, listen, when this light comes and a person receives God's revelation like the Gentiles, then this illumination, when it takes place, it will bring a knowledge of their dreadful condition before God, and then it also will bring, bring to them a knowledge of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It will bring to them the knowledge of the good news. Like it says in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts. For what reason? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, people need to be shown God's grace in Christ for deliverance from sin and death. It will also give them a knowledge of the glory of God. When they begin to understand the greatness of God, if you notice in the passage of Scripture I read in Luke chapter 1, it was because of the mercy of God that he comes to sinners. You remember the mercy of God? You know, God not giving something you deserve? Mercy is not God not giving something you deserve. And of course, what do you deserve? What do I deserve? I deserve judgment. And I deserve the condemnation of my own sin in hell. But because of God's mercy in the gospel, saying, listen, if you receive my gospel, you receive my mercy. That means I don't and won't give you what you deserve. And that will be transferred to his son who will take your deserving condemnation on his own body on the cross and finish it and pay it all so we can be set free. See, that is the gospel and that is the good news. So the light that comes from the word of God definitely includes that for the Gentiles and for all people. But if you notice specifically, there's a second purpose in our text that has to do specifically with Israel or with the Jews. It says in verse 32, it says, and the last part of the verse, and the glory of thy people Israel. That means the splendor, the honor, and the revealed presence of God that was promised to the people of Israel. Well, you know what? If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9, uh, just look at a few passages here in Romans 9 and verse number 35. Excuse me, Romans 9, verse number 3. Not th there's, no th there's not even 35 verses in there. See, if you're not turning through your Bibles, you'd never know that. Okay, verse number 3. It says, For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul, of course, talking about his kinsmen, the Jews, he, him himself being a Jew. Verse number four, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants 
and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. He is saying specifically, listen, the glory that comes to Israel is going to specifically come through Christ. And remember, what did they already have? They already had the adoption promised to them. They already had the glory that God's presence was already in their midst in the Old Testament by the Shekinah, and that the covenants were given to them. It wasn't given to all the peoples of the world, just to them, and the giving of the law, and to the temple service, and of course, ultimately, the promise of the fathers that the Messiah would come. That was all given to them. In fact, Isaiah 49.6 says it like this, and he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore and the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light to the nations. Why would he make Israel a light to the nations? So that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Of course, they failed in that mission. So Jesus, remember, talking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus is the glory to Israel in this sense. It is this people, the Jews that gave birth to the Messiah. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, what did he say to her? In chapter 4, verse 22, you worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. And then what does he say? For salvation is from what? The Jews. See, no other nation or group of people can make that claim. So see, Israel had to be here. They had to be a nation. They had to have those things even for a Messiah to come. That all laid the groundwork for what Jesus would do on the cross. But notice more specifically the mission that he talks about in verse number 33 of Luke chapter 2 and verse number, through verse number 35 that Jesus would come and it would be the rise of some but the fall of many. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a two-edged sword. When it goes out, when it is proclaimed, when it is taught, when it comes out, it comes out cutting both ways. It's come, it comes out cutting for salvation, and it comes out cutting for judgment. Both of those things are always happening when the gospel goes out. In fact, if you notice what it says in verse 33, it says, And his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that Thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In other words, the double purpose is set by God here in Scripture. It is God's intention to set Jesus among Israel that he shall cause many to fall and perish and many to rise and be saved. Again, where does this come from and where can we see it? In Scripture, well, we can see it in several places because 
The prophetic revelation was also abundant on this particular point, having to, to do with Christ's life and ministry. In Psalm, some 800 years before Jesus was born, in Psalm 69, it says, I am a stranger to my brothers and alien to my own mother's sons. And of course, in Psalm chapter 2, the rulers of the world will take counsel against him, where it says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, the Messiah. It says in Psalm 18, he would be the rejected capstone. In Isaiah 55, he would call a people that would not be his people. And then a few passages I'd like you to turn to. Look at Isaiah chapter 8 and verse number 14. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse number 14. It says, then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the house of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught again. And then in Isaiah 42, verse number six, just showing you that the gospel is also going to come to cause people to fall. Isaiah 46 and verse number, Isaiah 42, excuse me, verse 6. He says, I am the Lord, Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. Of course, this is part of what he's going to promise in bringing light to the Gentiles, and that is in verse number seven, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images, all right? And then he goes on to say, so both a bringing down of people and then a rising up of others. And so what, is it, what does that all mean for us? It means that when a person is presented with the grace and the mercy of God in specifically in Jesus Christ, if that person rejects that grace in unbelief, that person falls and perishes. If that person receives it, receives God's grace, and God's grace wins him. He rises up from his sin and death and, in, and, of course, ends up being raised up in spiritual resurrection. So, so this, again, shows that there can be no neutrality towards Jesus. No one either surrenders or remains at war with him. That's why it says in our passage that it will be a sign to be opposed, that the coming of the Messiah would be a, a, for his first coming, 
a sign to be opposed, and it was opposed greatly by Israel. It does explain, though, in Scripture that some of the people of Israel will accept her son as the Messiah, but a bulk of the nation will speak against him and completely reject their Messiah. And that's what happened when he came, right? The bona fide offer of the Messiah to the nation of Israel was rejected. But, it says in Romans, the nation of Israel is temporarily set aside until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then the plan towards the nation of Israel will again take place and come to flourishing in the tribulation, and God will now put them in their own land, and he will cause the dry bones to take on flesh. In other words, they will come alive spiritually. They will believe in their Messiah. And of course, at the last part of the tribulation, the, uh, they, many of the Jews who trust the Messiah will be slaughtered and beheaded. And yet, all part of the plan of God. So men fall solely by their own guilt and rejection, and men rise up solely by God's grace. It's amazing. Scripture even tells us that Mary, his mother, would experience the climax of the rejection of her son by Israel. Could you imagine when Jesus was gone, how Mary could have been treated uh, because of all that happened? So her pain will be extreme, it says there, and like the passing of a great sword through her soul, it tells us, and a sword will pierce you, even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See, the idea in this last part of verse number 35 is that when Jesus comes to a person with his grace and salvation, his contact with that person will produce and reveal certain thoughts and of a decisive nature. And of course, those thoughts would be those of unbelief who reject Jesus will continue on in darkness. And those of faith who repent from unbelief turn from the darkness and trust Jesus as their own Lord and Savior, they will believe and the light of the gospel will burst through, regenerate, and make them children of God. See, this is, was given to an ordinary guy. And you see how passionate he was been, the, the message that comes across in this passage. It tells us really what, what was going to happen. And it took place exactly the way it's written here. And of course, that means everything else that is promised by God will take place exactly the way God intended it to be. Now, that means this, that someone who comes to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior not only have inner peace, but also have departing peace. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 2, look at verse number 26. It says this, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when his parents brought him in, the child uh, of course, brought in the, his, the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. And then he took him in his arms and blessed God and says, Now, Lord, in verse number 29, 
you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation. See, it's, it's this, when we come to Christ, when we see Christ, when we know Christ is our salvation, there is a peace that happens between us and God. It's like Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's inner peace. But in this case, we see in this passage of Scripture, in verse 29, God was also giving him dying peace. I can die now. I can go because I know it's next. I know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I know that I have seen my salvation and what the Lord has taken, what the Lord accomplished will also be fully and completely accomplished in my life. So see, departing this world in peace doesn't just mean in some general sense that a person puts things in order and, and made their peace with God and so that they, they cleared their own conscience on their own terms and that they were ready to die. That's not what it means. See, our text makes it quite clear. His peace came because he saw the Lord's Christ, because his eyes saw the Savior, because his eyes saw his sin-bearer, because his eyes saw his, the anointed one, the Messiah. He saw the Messiah who was the light that would penetrate the darkness in which all people sit. And that's the only thing that can penetrate the darkness. Nothing else can. It was the great London preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the ark of Noah was a great ark which held all kinds of creatures our Christ is a great refuge who saves all kinds of sinners. Come unto me, you, are, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So what do those who come to Jesus find? Well, they find salvation without deeds, you don't have to come with your works. The Bible tells us Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. The sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth as a man and kept every aspect of the law that God requires of mankind. We could never do that. Something we could never do. So works are not included. So salvation is without works. Salvation is also without deception. Confession is the evidence of belief, where it says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And those who believe are declared righteous by God through believing in Jesus Christ, their substitute, their sin bearer, the one who took all their condemnation. So see, salvation is also without disappointment without distinction. Romans again, all who, all who come will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no difference between 
Jew or Greek or any other man. That means that, listen, no ethnic or racial group is excluded from the gospel. For he says there's no distinction. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on the name of the Lord. So in a very real sense, this message by Simeon is a message of a, the call of salvation. See, have you seen Jesus Christ? Have you believed him as your Lord and Savior? See, why is it possible for the Christian gospel to offer such hope? It's because it offers what no human being could attain on their, on, by themselves. It offers a right standing before a holy God based on all the work of Jesus Christ and also because he was the unique God-man. Jesus Christ was the only sinless human being who ever lived and the only one who could be the substitute for sinful, lost humanity. And the reason why is God had to have a perfect, unblemished lamb and Jesus was that unblemished lamb. So there is is one God, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for them all. See, there's one God, there's one mediator between man and God, and that's Christ Jesus. So the only solution was for, for humanity was for Christ to die the death we all deserved, the righteous for the unrighteous, so he can bring us to God, And then Christ's righteousness, his righteous record is put on the account of all who believe in Jesus Christ. He makes them right with God. And of course, like it says in the word of God, it becomes the gift of God unto salvation. That's what it is. So this morning, whoever you are, wherever you have come from spiritually, wherever you are in your spiritual walk, I pray this holiday season that you have an inner peace and a departing peace because you have heard the truth of God, of, of, from God's word on how to be made right with God and live for him specifically in the person and only in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have... If you have already done that, then you need to continue to live for him. And someday, you and I are going to come to a place where we're going to die. I pray that by God's grace that we can also have not only inner peace, but dying peace. Right? And you know why? Where do we get that peace from? Because we're resting in all the truth that God has promised. We're resting in his very character. And he's a God who's told us the truth and will accomplish all he has said in the word of God. And he's not done yet. And he's going to finish it someday. And the end for all who believe in him is a joyous and a hopeful and an exciting end. Uh, Actually, will be our beginning. Because we're going to forget all these dreary times we have gone through on this earth and just live and worship him forever. See, that's the delight of a Christian soul. That's their hope. And you know what? If you don't have that hope, there is no other hope. That's it.
And all God's people said what? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again this morning for your people. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that it goes out to all peoples. And, Lord, I pray that I know from the word it accomplishes two things. It will either accomplish judgment or it will accomplish salvation. I just ask you, Lord, that people who have heard today, they would know they themselves have believed, received Christ as their own Lord and Savior, and that in their life it will accomplish salvation. And not only salvation specifically now in the present, but eternal salvation. It has internal, eternal implications. And Lord, for that, I am thankful. And I pray, Lord, that your word would do its work. Thank you, Lord, for a simple man like Simeon that you can use. Lord, we're just ordinary people. Use us in the same way in the sense of bringing the gospel to a lost world. And I pray this in your name. Amen.